Elrod, my partner in crime. How you doing? Hello from Singapore. I'm well. How are you? Uh, I'm doing great. And uh, you know, if to, for our listeners, if there's if the sound, sound, sound seems a little bit off, um, uh, Adrian and I are uh, doing this podcast from um, uh, parts unknown. <laughs> I'm actually at my house, and Adrian is overseas. Um, and we'll be back together next week, but uh, we really wanted to knock out this episode since there's been so many things going on in the uh, in the campaign. Uh, we felt like it was really important to uh, have this uh, uh, conversation, get get a uh, feel for how the race is going right now. And um, Adrian, you know, last week was the uh, third debate, and. Um, you know, my takeaways, I have, I have a, a couple of takeaways from the debate, and then I'd love to hear yours. Um, uh, and it's been a few days, so I, I feel like, I, you know, it's, it's actually a, you know, it's probably those snap judgments and, and, and analysis I actually tend to try to ignore because I want to see where we, we are after a few, you know, after a few days or a week. But, um, you know, I think Elizabeth Warren, uh, again, did the, you know, had the best performance. And, and really, I think she does uh, something that I think is very, very savvy. Uh, and that is, uh, throughout all of these debates, she has uh, rarely ever gotten to a back and forth with anyone else on the stage. Um, she does a very good job of um, uh, of ducking and swerving away from attacks. And, and in some ways, she uses Bernie Sanders as... Um, as like her flak jacket in a way. And it's like, she'll like if there's an attack thrown on her or generally on a position, she supports Medicare for all or something like that. She ducks and Bernie's there to absorb it. And then Bernie wants to, you know, he wants to, he wants to respond uh, and defend and defend the position. And so he's the one who typically responds and Elizabeth Warren is able to remain on the, you know, in a very, as, as, um, uh, on the positive and never really has to get into the, you know, the dirt and the mud. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed that. I I just think it's like a real ingenious way to go about debating. Yeah, Doug, I think you're exactly right. And I think the thing about Elizabeth Warren and the strategy that she's deploying for the debate is exactly that. You know, she's keeping her powder dry. She's remaining on the positive. She's letting Bernie Sanders and frankly, some of the other down ballot candidates um, do her dirty work for her. Of course, um, you know, Mr. Castro during the debate last week. Um, really got himself into hot water by lodging, um, you know, a, a, a an attack on Biden that essentially um, incorporated his age and alluded that maybe he's too old to be running for president, which really, really got um, Castro in trouble. I'm not sure why he did that, because he's had such great per- debate performances that have allowed him to kind of break out of the pack at certain moments in this primary. He didn't have to do this and his as a result his numbers have gone down and I think what you're also seeing from voters not only reflected in Elizabeth Warren's strong um, numbers and strong exit polls if you will coming out of the debate but also contrast that with for example um, Mr. Castro's performance last week voters don't want to see a stage fight they don't want to see personal petty attacks I think they're happy to see a debate about the issues a substantive debate about the issues 
um, health care, education, the economy, issues like that. But they don't want to see, um, you know, some sort of low-level uh, fight, unnecessary fight between candidates. And I think that's why you're seeing Castro's numbers go down a little bit. But look, Elizabeth Warren continues to just impress so many people. I know we'll maybe get into her rallies a little bit later, but 20,000 people in Washington Square Park in New York this week. I mean, that is no easy feat to accomplish. As somebody who has worked on several presidential campaigns, and Doug, I know you have too, it is really hard to get people to show up at a rally, especially during the week, on a weeknight. You've got, you know, you've got kids, you've got school the next day, people have jobs, um, you know, in New York City. That was a significant accomplishment at this stage of the campaign. Um, and crowd sizes show enthusiasm. They show that people are excited, they're motivated, um, and, and they're energized about a candidate. So I think we sort of used to dismiss crowd sizes um, to an extent. You know, rallies, people at rallies don't necessarily vote, but I think that's starting to change a lot um, for whatever reason, and enthusiasm is really what this shows. Um, you know, just if you show up at a rally in Iowa, for example, or at an event with a candidate in Iowa, that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to vote for the candidate because you're still, you know, sort of shopping the menu. You're talking to different candidates. You're getting to know their issues, getting to know them personally. But New York City is a totally different ballgame. Um, that was, I was blown away by the fact that she was able to get over 20,000 people at her rally. So momentum is on her side. Um, but Doug, I think we should get into a little bit of the polls that are coming out of these um, debates and try to decipher whether or not debates really matter. I, I tend to think they do in the sense that if you're a second-tier candidate, you have a chance to really emerge. Um, if it was somebody like Kamala Harris in the first debate who really needed a big moment right before the um, fundraising deadline to get some more money in the door, to sort of elevate herself, put herself more on the map, uh, she needed a big moment. But in terms of the overall trajectory and course of polls, I mean, not a lot has changed, Doug, since the beginning of this campaign or when it comes to debates. I mean, Biden is still consistently number one in the polls across the board. However, Elizabeth Warren is gaining a lot of ground. Elizabeth Warren slash Bernie Sanders still tend to be number two. And then you've got Mayor Pete, Kamala, Cory Booker um, that are sort of in that, um, you know, middle of the pack. And then you've got everybody else. Um, so I'm not sure that, that the polls have really been influenced a lot by the debate, but the debates do give a chance for some of those middle-tier candidates to emerge, to break out, and they certainly, most importantly, provide an opportunity for candidates to really sink themselves and do some damage to their campaigns. Yeah, you know, I, so I don't think they matter as far as impacting voters. To be honest, right now um, they may they may as we get closer to actually to to New Hampshire and Iowa. But um, you know, if you look at you know if you look at the the um, the polling from before where the debates are to where it's now, it's been relatively consistent with the you know we've seen Biden sort of drop a bit and then he rebounded and he's been you know relatively consistently around thirty or so in the national polling. We've you know, the only person, you know, Bernie has uh, flatlined a bit. You know, Elizabeth Warren is, I think, the only one who we've seen incrementally increase her, her share of the, you know, share of the vote. Um, you know, as far as, like, 
you know, the other candidates. I mean, Kamala Harris and Pete Buttigieg and Beto O'Rourke, they're at four, five or six percent. That's where they were almost beforehand. So, you know, I'm not really, you know, and, and Kamala Harris was supposed to have had this really breakout performance in the first debate. And she has she did. And, you know, we've seen a steady decline in her numbers um, where I think here, here's where I think they, they make a difference. The first is. There are a way for the you know the news media to to craft a narrative about the overall campaign and about each candidate. Um, the second place I think where they impact is, and you you touched on this with uh, Kamala is uh, with Kamala Harris, is that they are a tool to motivate your donors and your hardcore supporters. When you need a boost, you know the debates are one tool to generate that energy. I think we saw that with Beto. Last week, we did see it with Kamala. The last place where I think they have an impact is on uh, generating positive free media. And right now, when you're not spending a lot of money on advertising, free media is gold. And so the, you know, the debates, creating that moment that you can put up, you know, on YouTube, spread around on social media, and then, you know, follow it up with, um, you know, TV the next day, that's very helpful. So, I, I guess we agree. I mean, they're they're sort of like they have marginal impacts that are helpful, sort of short term, long term. They haven't seemed to make a major difference, with the exception of, I think, where we've seen Elizabeth Warren steadily move up following, you know, really since May. But the debates have certainly helped her. Yeah, you're exactly right. And again, in terms of the overall horse race, I'm not sure they mattered that much, but. You can raise money off of those big moments. You can sink yourself like Castro did. You can have a breakout performance, again, to an extent like Castro did in the first debate. So I think the debate served that purpose. But, you know, look, Doug, we are now past Labor Day, a couple weeks past Labor Day, and this is notoriously the time that people start tuning in. So the fifth, sixth, seventh debates that take place this fall, those are going to be pretty important because the Iowa caucuses are only about four and a half months away. And these, this is the time where candidates are really going to be able to demonstrate their differences. And I'm going to be looking for, Doug, I'm going to be looking to see if Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders get into it. Because, look, if, if you can We've been waiting for this. We've been waiting for We've been waiting for it. Give the people what they want. <laughs> give them the good TV they want. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, but are you? <laughs> if anyone, if well, sort of. If anybody's going to throw the first punch, I think it's going to be Bernie Sanders. He's the one who needs it more. Um, he's really starting to stall out. Um, you know, anywhere between nineteen and twenty percent. Where's his floor? Where's his ceiling? But you also think about this. You know, if Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, who again have so many similar positions, they've got slightly different ways of achieving their goals in terms of their plans and the substance and the, and the, um, the, the uh, you know, the, the various ways their plans would work, but they have the same goals on healthcare, on education, and certainly on the economy. And if you combine their two voter percentages in the polls, I mean, they would hands down that there was one candidate that was, um, you know, getting both Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren support right now, that candidate would be blowing everybody else, including Joe Biden, out of the water. That person right. would at least be at 40 percent, maybe a little bit more. So at some point, the gloves are going to come off. My bet is it's going to be in the probably the sixth debate, maybe the fifth, but likely the sixth debate, 
and it's going to be Bernie Sanders throwing the first jab because he's the one who is is losing a lot of his supporters to Elizabeth Warren. So he has more to lose in this. There was also, Doug, I, I would be remiss if I didn't point out the Politico piece that ran yesterday talking about how Bernie Sanders' campaign is going through a major shakeup right now. Um, they're going through, so they're, they're changing staff in New Hampshire. Um, I think there's some other fundamental problems in terms of communication and just overall structure that their campaign is trying to work out and work through. I mean, these problems happen. We certainly went through it um, between Iowa and New Hampshire on Hillary's campaign. But it's indicative of where he's at right now. I mean, this is not where I think he was hoping to be. Yes, he's a very comfortable, you know, third place in some polls. He's second place. But Elizabeth Warren is the one who has momentum. She's the one who's getting the large crowds, again, 20,000 people in Washington Square Park. And you know what, Doug? Elizabeth Warren likes people. You know, she loves, she feeds off the energy of the crowd. She stays in line and takes a selfie with every last person at an event. That, that is, you just cannot underestimate how difficult, but also how, um, you know, how much that works to her favor, that she's willing to do that. Bernie Sanders almost wears it as a badge of honor that he doesn't like to be around people, that he doesn't, you know, he's, he's not a friendly guy. Um, you know, he's not a people person. Elizabeth Warren is. And people want somebody who is a people person. Um, well, I, they want that person that they can have a beer with, that they can, um, you know, they could imagine themselves being friends with. And Elizabeth Warren's got that. Well, you know, it's interesting because four months ago, you know, there was a big debate, or even in the last like few months, you know, there was a big question about this whole, you know, this whole, you know, issue of likability. And I think like the people who were on the, you know, who were supporters of Elizabeth Warren were like, why are we talking about likability? <laughs> you know, it's like, and, and now I think like, I, I have, you know, I, I, I think that the, the, their campaign, whether or not they wanted to acknowledge that that was a legitimate, uh, um, discussion to have because every, every campaign is about who you, you know, who you like. I mean, there's a popular vote for a reason. Um, and, uh, they have made, you know, they've taken a lot of steps to make her available to voters. I think that's really smart. The selfie line was, you know, was super long in New York. You know, the, the one thing that, you know, look, I would on the, on the crowd size, you know, I worked for Dean in 2004, we were pulling 15, 20,000 people in the summer of, uh, 03. So, you know, I just think that crowd sizes are important. It shows that you can organize and you have enthusiasm and energy. But what the, you know, ultimately it's how long you can, you know, whether you're not, it's enduring and whether or not you can turn the crowd size into actual volunteers who knock on doors, who get people to the polls. And that remains to be seen by any of these folks because we haven't had a, we haven't had a contest yet. Um, but, you know, look, I think you mentioned, a, you know, the point about uh, Warren and Sanders uh, and, you know, if you combine them, you know, obviously they would be, you know, over, um, in, you know, close to 40, maybe a little bit over. And, you know, look, for the Biden campaign, the best thing for them, the best thing for them right now is to have Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren in this race uh, competing against one another. And the longer it goes with them in there, with those two in there, I think it's the better it is for Joe Biden. Uh, and there's also some evidence that, um, 
that, uh, you know, Sanders supporters, you know, their second choice is Joe Biden. So if anything, they want yep. uh, they, they would want uh, 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 they would want they would want Elizabeth Warren to um, knock Sanders out because Sanders supporters, you know, a majority of them are very close. I mean, it's not it's not a majority. It's a small it's a small fraction. I think 20, it's almost even 29 percent support Joe Biden. Uh, Elizabeth Warren gets 28 percent. But if we were to play this out, they would want um, a Warren to knock out Bernie and then, you know, they they would see an uptick of support because they're competing for a lot of the same types of voters, you know, sort of working class uh, voters, white and black. Um, Biden's doing extremely well with African-American uh, voters, but he's also he also has, you know, a non-college educated Democrat, white working class voters that are also <laughs> Uh, interested in Bernie. Um, and uh, so, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how the next debate impacts everything. Uh, I think that um, I, I just, you know, just I, I'm still I'm still scratching my head about the Castro strategy in the last debate. I, I, I don't I have I, I to me, it, it did seem like it was a bit it, it was premeditated, but I I, I still don't really understand what he why he did what he did because he's been such a classy, um, you know, uh, campaigner yeah. who's run a really good race, and this was just so out. It just didn't even seem to be him, and it was just uh, it seemed like he was mocking the vice president. And uh, I, I don't know what do you what do you think? I, I, I just felt like it was a cheap shot, and uh, it was so out of character for him, and it was really disappointing to watch. Um, and I'm not really quite sure who thought that was a good idea. Yeah, I agree, Doug. I don't understand what the rationale for that was, especially when you take into consideration what happened to Eric Swalwell when he threw um, a cheap shot at Biden regarding, um, you know, time to pass the torch in the first debate. Um, that fell flat, and it eventually he was forced essentially out of the race. And I think that sort of started, um, you know, that uh, started that that course of action for him. Um, Castor, I have a feeling it's going to be the same way. Um, you know, I have to wonder who's doing his debate prep, if he's really got um, a strong team in place to do that. Um, I don't know what was behind that, because to your point, it is just so out of character for him. This is somebody who has really put himself on the map in part because he's had such strong debate performances. He's brought up issues that many other candidates have not brought up. He's been so spot on on immigration, on gun control, um, you know, on the situation, the crisis at the border. He has done such a good job in these debates. So I don't really understand what that rationale is. But Doug, I want to pivot really quickly to that NBC poll that you mentioned because it just came out today. Um, you know, Biden, Joe Biden gained in this poll. He just can, mm -hmm. you know, every time we think, oh, you know, maybe you know, this lackluster performance or he didn't really do anything um, to, to really, you know, have a strong performance or maybe he made a gap here and there. This may hurt him. It doesn't hurt him. His performances, his, um, you know, his gaps, the handful of gaps that he's made in, in the debate have frankly not impacted him at all. If anything, in this poll, he's gained a little bit. Probably has something to do with Castro. Maybe <laughs> Maybe that was yeah, maybe. maybe that was a deal that Castro and Biden had behind the scenes. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, well, he was good. I mean, look, I thought Biden was good. I thought he had a good performance. I mean, I, I didn't, you know, I thought, I thought was, it was his know, best I mean, performance. 
that he had that he's had so far. Very, I thought he had a very good performance too. I think if you read the headlines from some of the stories, those headlines will say, you know, they'll focus on the fact that he used the term record player. That you know, some of his you know the, the headlines were not. God very forbid he him used in that the word record player. <laughs> but if you watch just, the debate, if you watch the debate performance, Doug, he actually did a good job, and I, I agree with you. I mean, his overall performance is pretty good. So in this poll, Biden leads. I'm reading Carrie Dan's tweet here right now um, because I think she really sums it up. Carrie Dan from NBC News really sums it up. Biden leads. Warren Gaines. Sanders is stable. Mayor Pete is stable, and Harris slips. I mean, this poll really encapsulates it and that that description that she gave really encapsulates i think where we are in this primary at this point um you know Kamala Harris, yeah the second tier right now is Alan, andrew yang California. is in the second tier and andrew yang by the way in the latest poll i forget which poll this was but there was a poll that came out yesterday he is beating her now granted it's within the margin of error but he's got seven percent of the voter share in california she's got six percent i mean she's this United States Senator from California, who was just elected um, in 2015. Yeah. So, um, you know, I'm not sure what's going on with that campaign, but um, I think what we're trying to, I, I still think there is room for an insurgent. I think that it's still too early, Doug, to say that Biden, Sanders, and Warren, this is going to be a three-way race, or this is a three-way race between the, the three of them. I'm still, I still think this is too early to make that determination. I think there's still room for somebody um, like a Mayor Pete, like a Kamala, like Cory Booker, maybe even an Amy Klobuchar to come in and, um, you know, and, and, and find a competitive place in that, um, in that top tier status. But I don't know who that person's going to be. And I thought that person, I thought Kamala was going to be easily in the top two, top three. I'm not sure what is going on there. It's also important to note, Doug, and then I'll pass the baton to you, that of those top three who are constantly polling in the top three in most of the polls, there's not a person of color. And I do think that there is still room for someone of color to come into that pack. Now, of course, right now, African-American voters are overwhelmingly with Joe Biden. Some are with Elizabeth Warren, too, but he still holds a strong um, share of those voters. But, you know, it's an important reminder that just because you are a person of color doesn't mean you're going to support someone who is a person of color. And just because you're a person of color running for the presidency, i.e. Kamala, i.e. Cory Booker, doesn't mean that your entire block of supporters are going to be people of color. I mean, Kamala and Cory have a lot of, um, you know, non-people of color who are supporting them. So that's it's going to be interesting just to see if somebody else emerges from this tier two pack to reclaim tier one status and whether that person is Kamala Harris. Well, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that I don't think there's, I think the three people who are going to compete for the nomination are Biden, Warren and Sanders. And I don't see anyone else uh, being able to get into the top tier. Uh, They are, right now head and shoulders of everyone else. Uh, And, you know, look, I'd love to see more people um, pick up steam. I thought Amy Klobuchar had a really, you know, fine moment uh, during the debate, uh, particularly when she engaged. You know, she seemed to zero in and put her sights on Bernie Sanders and his health care bill. And, 
Um, you know, I thought she had a, a, some really good moments there. Uh, and Booker has been a solid debater, and I've been waiting for him to uh, make a move. But right now, I mean, look, there's one tier, and that's Joe Biden at the top with Elizabeth Warren, I think, uh, not comfortably in second, but in second. And then Biden and then Bernie Sanders right around third. And then there's another tier, and that tier now is occupied by Pete B and um, um, Kamala Harris and Andrew Yang. Um, and, you know, the, <laughs> if you would have, were to tell me that Mayor, you know, Mayor Pete Buttigieg and Andrew Yang would be in the second tier right now, five months ago or six months ago, I would have said you were crazy. Um, but that's where, I mean, you read, if you look at this Wall Street Journal poll, you know, Kamala Harris and Andrew Yang are basically tied. You mentioned the Emerson poll that had, um, uh, Harris at 6%, Yang at 7% in California, you know, and, and, uh, you know, so look, there are a number of people, Klobuchar and Booker are both at two. So there's a second tier, but I, I don't think there, there was a time where I thought where we had a, you know, there was Biden and Sanders and Warren and then, you know, uh, Harris and Pete Buttigieg, everyone at the, Biden was sort of the clear front runner and everyone else was sort of jockeying around. I think, I think we are at the stage of this race where I don't know if it is early. I think we're sort of heading into the second half of this game of this game right now. You know, I mean, I think we're we're almost into October. We've had three debates. We're going to have an important fundraising uh, quarter and um, at the end of uh, September, that's going to give us some indications of things. But um, these folks got to make they you know, if you're right, Adrian, and, and I'm you know, I I I. Um, you know, I think there's a possibility you could see someone make a move, but they got to do it now. Like they've got to, it, they got to rejigger their campaigns. Maybe some folks are going to have to like move into Iowa or move into New Hampshire or move into South Carolina. But um, for everyone not in the top tier, you're not doing something right. And uh, and and so um, there there has to be there's going to have to be a moment where you think about okay, what can we do to put our candidate in the best position to, um, you know, last. And I think that that is hopefully, maybe that is what the strategy is, is how can we, you know, how can we finish in the top three in Iowa and then move to New Hampshire and maybe make some, you know, top three there and just keep going. Uh, but right now I think those top three are pretty clear and something uh, of significance is going to have to happen to jar that, you know, draw that, jar them loose. Yeah, Doug, that's right. And I think we should talk about Iowa here for a second. I mean, Iowa, of course, always matters. It's the first caucus state in the nation. It is um, ground zero for all the candidates, all the campaigns right now. Um, but depending on who wins Iowa, it's a different story depending on who wins Iowa, I guess is a good way to put it. For example, Elizabeth Warren, I think more and more. I still think Joe Biden is a candidate to beat in Iowa because of his poll numbers. Elizabeth Warren is constantly gaining ground, and she is very well known as the candidate in Iowa who has the best ground game, the best ground operation, which is everything in a caucus state. It matters a little bit less in a voting state because you, there's a number of ways you can get people out to vote. You can spend money on early voting. You can spend money, depending on the state, on absentee ballots. You can run specific programs for those purposes. But in caucus states, it's all about organization. You've got to get your people out to the caucuses that day, the day of the caucuses. So it's all organization. 
And Elizabeth Warren, hands down, has the best operation. We had Matt Paul on, who was Clinton's Iowa State director a couple weeks ago. He made it clear that it is just a well-known fact that Elizabeth Warren has the best ground game. So let's map this out for a second. If Elizabeth Warren is to win Iowa, she will go into New Hampshire, where she's polling very well right now, with a lot of momentum. New Hampshire voters tend to like somebody who is from a neighboring state. We saw that with Bernie Sanders in 2016. Um, We're seeing that reflected right now in the polls with Elizabeth Warren. We know that many candidates are not spending a lot of time there, in part because they believe that that state is likely going to go to somebody like Bernie Sanders, like Elizabeth Warren, possibly Joe Biden. Um, But, you know, you're seeing other candidates spend less and less time there and focus more on Iowa. So let's say that Elizabeth Warren wins Iowa. Let's say that she wins New Hampshire in part because she's got momentum from Iowa. And, of course, she's from a neighboring state. Nevada always tends to sort of be a crapshoot. Again, it's about organization. But if, if, you know, strong organization in caucus states is, is precedent for Elizabeth Warren, then she would likely win Nevada if she won the first two states. Then she would go into South Carolina with a ton of momentum. Of course, Joe Biden is still leading significantly in South Carolina. But if she is the one who has won the first three states so far, that's going to put her in a very competitive situation in South Carolina. And then let's say hypothetically she wins South Carolina. Then you go into Super Tuesday. I mean, if she sweeps Super Tuesday, it's over. I mean, there is our nominee, Elizabeth Warren. That's not exactly the same strategy for every single candidate um, when it comes to Iowa. I think Joe Biden could afford to lose Iowa, for example, and still maybe pull off a win in New Hampshire. Um, I think if somebody like Kamala Harris were to have a resurgence and win Iowa, that puts her in a very strong advantage. Um, You know, let's remember when Barack Obama won Iowa in 2008, um, a lot of African-American voters who were supporting Hillary Clinton looked at him and said, oh, wait, he's a person of color who can win an almost all-white state. We're with him. He's our guy. And that really changed the trajectory, trajectory of the race for us. You know, there's a lot of dynamics in play, but bottom line is if Elizabeth Warren wins Iowa, this race may be over. Well, I mean, if she wins the first four early states, she will be the nominee. But um, I I think that there's a uh, I think there's a um, look, I think she's a favorite in Iowa to personally, you know, like the polls may not show it, but I think that, you know, they could be some, you know, they could be a. you know, a lagging indicator. Um, plus, it's really hard to poll Iowa. So, I mean, I think you got to take – we take all these polls with a grain of salt, but the polls in Iowa are typically it's, – it's just very hard to poll. And um, Des Moines Register has the sort of gold standard there, and they typically get it right. But you're not going to know that until much later. Uh, but she does have a fantastic organization there. I think New Hampshire is going to be very interesting. Um you know, I think that if Biden can stay in the you know top three in each of the in the first two states, and then uh, and then go to Nevada, where it's a heavy labor state in terms of unions participating in the process, and I think he's got, you know, he he's going to have whether or not he actually has many union endorsements or not. I think he's going to have a lot of union workers, and uh, it's also a lot of. Um, uh, Hispanics uh, uh, and working uh, and uh, I should say um, uh, working class folks, uh, many of them who are Hispanic, blue collar um, folks uh, who, who participate in the caucuses there. And I think 
I think Biden might do really well in Nevada. And then he goes to South Carolina. And, you know, I think that you've got to say, unless something significant happens, um, he's got to be the favorite there. And then Super Tuesday is going to be very interesting. Who's got resources to even compete in a number of those places? But remember that, you know, Super Tuesday has a ton, you know, a ton of, uh, a, a, uh, first of all, a ton of delegates. But then you also have a significant number of African-Americans who will be voting throughout uh, the country that day. And, you know, if that point, you know, it looks like, you know, Kamala and um and Booker uh, are gone, um, then you would think that that would only strengthen uh, Biden. And conceivably, by, uh, Bernie Sanders may – he will still be in the race, but he may he may be, uh, you know, at this point, you know, um, you know, sort of a, you know, an afterthought for folks. So then it sets up a Biden-Elizabeth Warren showdown on Super Tuesday, which – I think that's what we're heading for. I think that's where we're going to be. I think that I think what coming out of the first four early states, I think right now, I think it's going to be too. You know, I don't think anyone is going to have they're going to be the solid front runner. And I think we go to Super Tuesday, and they're they're going to battle it out there, and they'll probably split. I think, Adrian, I am going to say it today. I think we are going to. Uh, we are not going to have a person reach the magic number of delegates uh, before uh, Milwaukee. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And um, I also, I mean, you know, Doug, I don't know. I don't know. I still think if Elizabeth Warren um, wins three out of the first four early states, then it's over. I mean, she's going to do well on Super Tuesday. And candidates are going to run out of money. I mean, it's not like we've got, you know, a race between two people with Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton both um, being very financially competitive with each other. I mean, we've got a lot of people running and the money is only going to take people so far, especially those second tier candidates. But it is important, Doug, before we wrap to note that Mayor Peak and Beto are both focusing on Super Tuesday states. I mean, Beto recently went to Arkansas, my home state. I think he's the first and only candidate so far running for president this cycle to go to Arkansas, in part because Arkansas is a Super Tuesday state. He's obviously trying to play the delegate game, the long game when it comes to delegates, by focusing on some Super Tuesday states. Of course, Texas, um, he's being very, he's running a competitive race in Texas. He should as his home state. And we got to keep in mind that Texas, which is very delegate heavy, is a treasure trove for candidates. So, sure, I agree. If Elizabeth Warren, even if she wins three of the four or even sweeps the first four early states, there are still enough delegates in Super Tuesday states to keep the race going, um, arguably going. But the question is, do candidates have the money? Do they have the resources? Do they have the staff in place to remain competitive? Um, we will see if that if that's the case. And uh, you mentioned uh, Super Tuesday states. Uh, Joe Biden was in Alabama a few days ago. Um, he was actually in an event with Doug Jones at a church. There, which uh, which was really interesting, you know. I I, I just you know I wonder um, how many of the people running for president right now would Doug Jones want to be with at a church in his home state? Yep, smart. I mean, by I mean, Biden. I, I, you know, and I and I actually think that if you're the Biden campaign, that's the kind of thing. That's an argument that you know at some point you may be making. You know, like especially because. 
you're going to have uh you're going to have people like Doug Jones, but you're also going to have um uh you know, we we're going to have uh four or five or six maybe more competitive Senate races and we've got the House and 40 seats that we got to defend. And, you know, at what point do they start trying to make the not only the electability argument, but I am the best to be, you know, for coattails. Um, There's no evidence of that right now. But the Doug Jones thing just made me think like, okay, who else would Doug Jones welcome into his state knowing he's got a tough reelect? He's, you know, the number one target uh, in the Senate right now. Who else would he who, who else would he want there? Uh, I don't know. And that is going to be something that I think as we get further down the road is going to be a conversation that we hear more and more about. Who is the person that can help Democrats down ballot the most? And um, I don't know who it is, but I just, you know, I started to think about that when I saw Biden with Doug Jones. All right, Doug. Well, thank you. Anyway. Great to chat with you. Looking forward to joining you in person next week back in uh, Washington, D.C. Back in America. Back in America, exactly. Well, uh, right. safe travels, Adrian. We can't wait to have you back here. And um, for my partner in crime, Adrian Elrod, I am Doug Thornell. This has been the Electables. We'll catch you next time.